Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Please welcome your guest moderator, Chris Hewitt. Hello. Paul Franklin is one of the leading lights of the visual effects industry worldwide, but he's perhaps best known for his work with Christopher Nolan on movies like The Dark Knight Rises, Inception, and Interstellar, the last two for which he won an Oscar. Uh, let's take a look, before we meet the man, at his work in Interstellar. What are you going to do with it? I'm going to give it something socially responsible to do. Can't we just let it go? This thing needs to learn how to adapt, Murph. Our game must mask up. Like the rest of us. This world's a treasure. It's been telling us to leave for a while now. Your daughter's generation will be the last to survive on Earth. You're the best pilot we ever had. Get out there and save the world. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? To our galaxy. Here we go. We're here. Get down fast, don't we? Actually, we want to get there in one piece. Hang on. We have a mission. Our mission does not work if the people on Earth are dead by the time we pull it off. Well, we got this far, farther than any human in history. Oh, well, not far enough. Make a count. Where's the mountains? Those are mountains. The waves. I'm not gonna make it! Yes, you are. Yes, you are! You might have to decide between seeing your children again and the future of the human race. We'll find a way. Please welcome Paul Franklin. <laughs> and friends. <laughs> Put him in the middle. Um, so, yeah, you see, you've won two Oscars now for your work with uh, Christopher Nolan. Uh, when did you first meet him? I met Chris on uh, Batman Begins back in, uh, let me see, it was late 2003. So I, I was uh, looking after all the work creating Gotham City and the Batmobile and the digital stunt doubles of Batman. And uh, it, was, it was an interesting experience because it was his first real go at doing visual effects in a film. Obviously, it was his, uh, let me see, his uh, third, fourth feature film after uh, following Memento and Insomnia. But none of those films used visual effects in any kind of significant way. In fact, I don't think there was any digital work of any form in those films. So it was very much a learning experience for both of us that uh, I had to persuade him that we weren't going to subvert his movie and turn it into an animated film, which I think is what he was slightly worried about. And, um, and of course, what you're always trying to do as a visual effects artist is try and wrap your head around the process of the filmmaker. 
because uh, I think the ideal is that you understand what they want to do, you build your process around them, and then eventually the two things meet together. Mm. And, uh, and over the years, how has that relationship changed and progressed? Well, it's become you know, very collaborative. Uh, this Interstellar is my fifth film with Chris, after all three of the Dark Knight films and Inception, of course. And um, what I've seen is with each successive film, he's more and more confident of what visual effects is going to be able to give him. Now, it doesn't mean that he's become in any way overly reliant on visual effects, but he is, uh, obviously, with a film like Interstellar, he's attempting a type of storytelling that really can't be done any other way. There's, there's Obviously, there's the usual huge amount of practical work in the film, fantastic locations and sets, brilliant performances, of course, from our cast. But uh, a lot of the concepts, the really big cosmological themes of Interstellar can only really be approached with visual effects. And that was something that, you know, I was very aware of the amount of trust that he was putting in, in what we were doing. And, uh, you know, that raises the stakes because, you know, you've got to deliver on, on those, uh, those big ideas. And, and where do you begin? You have black holes, you have wormholes, you have robots, you have waves a thousand feet high. Where well, do you begin? Everything always begins with the script. Um, the, I think the question that visual effects people and filmmakers in general have to ask themselves these days is not so much, you know, how are we going to do it? You know, what techniques shall we use? Is there something really cool we can shoehorn into this movie? The, really, the question you have to ask yourself is, why are we doing it? What is the story we want to tell? What is the point we're trying to make? So we start with a very uh, close reading of the script. I go away and think about it for a while. And then we sit down and we start a series of conversations where I'm just proposing different ways that we could bring what's on the page to the screen using visual effects. And sometimes Chris will say, that's brilliant. I never thought of that before. Uh, quite a lot of the time we say, don't be ridiculous. We're going to film this and find somewhere. Now, the great thing is that over the years, as I say, uh, five films, uh, it's nearly 12 years now. Um, those moments when I propose stuff that isn't going to work and he's not going to want are you know, thankfully quite rare these days because I've got a very good idea of how he wants to work. And so from that, we then start getting into the really deep things. I mean, the trickiest thing on Interstellar was, well, there were a lot of tricky things, but the really tricky thing intellectually was the, uh, the Tesseract, the, uh, uh, the multi-dimensional, hyper-dimensional space that uh, Cooper finds himself in when he drops inside the black hole because... Chris described to me how the whole scene is about this man finding himself essentially at the wrong end of time, and yet he's in a, an environment in which time is manifested as a physical dimension, and which allows him to then navigate into the past and see his children. And he gets the comfort of seeing his children. He's like, well, that sounds fantastic. I have no idea what it looks like. <laughs> and, um, uh, and neither did anybody else at that point. Okay. So that then started a very, very involved process of... Uh, research, uh, we spent a lot of time looking at the way that other artists, filmmakers had approached representing time, how time was represented in photography, uh, looking at all sorts of different things. And we went, we explored so many different ideas. So what you see is not the first idea that came into our head, but something that we arrived at, basically the day that we had to start building the set. Because of course, that's the other thing, it being Chris, he said, I'd like to build this as a physical set and put Matthew in it. I don't want to do this on a green screen. And, do it all with uh, computer graphics. So, um, you know, you've got your work cut out for you there. Amazing. In fact, um, back there you were saying that there's only one green screen shot in the entire film. There is. Uh, there's one green screen, which is the final scene in the hospital where Matthew's character, Cooper, wakes up in his hospital bed, goes to the window, pulls back the curtain and sees the baseball game outside. 
and we had a green screen behind that, uh, behind that curtain. And I, I sometimes wonder if we probably, we might have been able to get away with not doing that green screen. We, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was just one of those borderline cases, so we decided to err on the side of safety. And that all comes from uh, Chris's dedication to verisimilitude and to truth and... Well, it's, it's about uh, not trying to intrude too much on the filmmaking process. Um, if you put a big sheet of green outside of your set, yeah. then first off you're asking your cast to really just imagine what's there. Now in the case of a film like Interstellar or a science fiction film, it may well be that you're saying, okay, look, there's something beautiful out there. We don't know what it is yet, and we're not going to know this for at least six months until we get into post, but just imagine it anyway and do your best. And of course, that's, that's a real, you know, asking the, the cast to do an awful lot there. Now, modern acting, film acting requires this, and this is what the, their, their job involves. But if the more reality you can give them, the happier they're going to be and the better performance you're going to get. So when you see the scenes inside the spacecraft in Interstellar, you're looking out the window of the spacecraft, what you're seeing is pretty much what the cast was seeing. We got all of our imagery of wormholes and black holes and galaxies and things, planets. Uh, we put that all together early on during pre-production and then we used very powerful digital projectors to throw these images onto enormous screens that we built outside of the set. We had one screen that was I think 80 feet high and 300 feet long, and uh, we'd project the images onto that. And, uh, and the cast loved it. Uh, they, they loved the, the immersive sense of being on what Chris described essentially as a simulator rather than a set. Uh, and from our point of view, it allowed us to basically design the visual effects as we were making the movie, rather than pushing it all off into post-production, which is what normally happens. So it wasn't a case of trial and error, though. You had to arrive at roughly what it would look like, look like yeah, I mean, we went through obviously a design process and uh, we had a team back here in London uh, working very hard on creating those images. They would send them to me over the internet and I'd put them onto my, uh, my MacBook and run out onto set and just sneak up to Chris and, and they say, what do you think of that? Uh, that's, that's how we do this stuff. And so you have to pick your moment. We shoot our movies on film, so there's always every 15 minutes or so we have to reload the cameras so nothing can happen while that's going on <laughs> so that's when you rush in and show him stuff or you sneak up to him at lunchtime and, and show him things but that's how we arrived at uh, we made you know we made the decisions as to what we were going to show but the uh, the trickier thing was actually creating the stuff in the first place because there was a lot of an awful lot of work and uh, serious software development went into creating in particular the black hole and can you talk about that? I mean, the, how do you create a black hole? We've seen black holes on the big screen before, but this is, to my tiny mind anyway, the most scientifically accurate black hole we've seen so far. I mean, how we'd, we'd like to think so, yeah. yes. Um, we were lucky, very lucky, in that we had this amazing collaborator, our scientific advisor, Professor Kip Thorne of Caltech in uh, Pasadena in California. Kip is one of the world's leading authorities on quantum gravity, uh, relativity, black holes, wormholes, space-time. He's a close colleague and friend of Stephen Hawking. He's been working on this stuff since the 1960s. And uh, Interstellar was originally Kip's idea, the idea of a science fiction film with real science woven into it. So very early on in pre-production, Chris sent me over to see Kip, and Kip gave me what I call space-time 101. You know, he took me through all the basic concepts behind the wormhole, the black hole, all the various other things. And he showed me some extraordinary imagery uh, of how black holes work. 
which I was quite familiar with because I'm interested in these sorts of things. And, um, and I said, yeah, well, I understand what this is. And he showed me the, the, you know, the classic image of a sort of a big sheet with a, a funnel in it and everything swirls down this and that's the black hole. And we all know that from science fiction films. You know, that's how wormholes and black holes are generally portrayed. And he said, well, no, this is completely wrong. This is not a representation of what's happening in the real universe. This is uh, effectively scientific shorthand. It's what's called an embedded space diagram. You collapse the three-dimensional universe into a two-dimensional sheet, and with the spare dimension you've got left over, you can show it how it's warping into the fourth dimension, which we can't imagine. You know, so that's how they depict it. But of course, that's how sci-fi films have always shown these things. Uh, he said, no, it's a three-dimensional hole in our universe. It's a sphere. And, um, and furthermore, the gravity of the black hole is so strong, it warps the space-time around it, producing this huge gravitational lens that produces the extraordinary refractions and reflections. And these things are real. You know, there are Hubble Space Telescope pictures of gravitational lenses caused by galaxies. You can, if you Google it, you'll find these things. Um, the... The thing with uh, Interstellar was that we suddenly realized, well, we've got this amazing scientist working with us who can tell us about these things. Uh, and furthermore, he can give us the physics, the actual mathematics underpinning these things. And so he kept formed a very close relationship with the R&D team at Double Negative here in London, our visual effects company. And uh, between them, over a period of about, there's about six months of intense work, and Kit was working on this every day over this period. Uh, they developed new software that would correctly calculate the way that the light rays are warped by the gravity of the black hole. And same with the wormhole as well. Apparently wormholes are theoretically possible but probably don't exist. But if they did exist, they would look like the one in our film, according to Kit. And so what you're looking at in the film is not uh, fantasy. It's actually driven by the maths, by the physics. Uh, we're adding a little bit of you know, optical sweetening, a little bit of a glow. We, balance the exposure and the colors, and that's it. It's really, you're looking at the science. And the science gave us such extraordinary, compelling imagery that we just didn't, we didn't really need to dress it up with the usual layer of uh, space magic, which typically science fiction films tend to resort to in order to make it dramatic for the audience. You know, they do that. And you can understand why they do that. This was so extraordinary. Uh, we thought, well, let's just stick it in and see where we get to. And uh, for the sequences that take place inside the wormhole, no one's actually been inside a wormhole. Anyone here been inside a wormhole? No? Okay, we're good. Um, so, again, you, you don't want to spread, spread space magic in that, but no one's been inside one, so how do you know well, how that will look? We, again, our software, this is where we actually did, or there was the one time we did take a little bit of artistic license. The, uh, the software gave us a, some extraordinary imagery, but it was very, very difficult to understand what you were looking at. It was a sort of crazy Hall of Mirrors effect. So what we did is we took what the software was giving us and we built on top of that to add a more impressionistic idea of what traveling through the wormhole might be to this sense of a journey going somewhere um, but uh, at the same time we didn't want to just end up you know racing down a tunnel which is typically what happens with these things and of course you know hanging over everything is the uh, is you know is the legacy of uh, Kubrick's 2001 which is the sort of the giant monolith that hangs over all of these sorts of films so uh, you're keen not to, uh, you want to pay homage, but you don't want to, you don't want to just blatantly steal. You want to be original. But neither do you want to run in the opposite direction just because what you have worked no, on yeah. happens to look a little bit like that. No, no, there's a, there is a, uh, they, they share some of the same DNA, I suppose you could say. Okay. But there's, a, there's two more elements I really want to talk about. The robots, Tars and Case. Yes, Tars and Case. How did you come up with those guys? 
Well, in the script, uh, it doesn't really give much of a description of them. Uh, it's a, it was a little bit like the Tesseract in that respect. Um, Chris described them as articulated machines. And he was very keen that they feel like a piece of real equipment, like a, a camera tripod is actually how he described it, something that you might find on the set. And if you think about robots in the real world, uh, you go to a car factory and they're giant mecha mechanical arms with a welding torch on the end. Or it's that thing which creeps around your, your apartment you know, doing the vacuuming, which is like, looks like a frisbee with little wheels on it. Um, they're not the, again, the kind of classical science fiction idea of a human being made out of pistons and gaskets. Uh, they're not anthropomorphized. And then we took it even further with what would it look like if a, a you know, a, one of the top 20th century architects like Mies van der Rohe or Corbusier designed a robot. And so we ended up with this very minimalist robot, which essentially is, in one respect, it's the monolith from 2001, but it, it can walk around, pick things up, and tells jokes. So it's, um, but again, it's, this is Chris Nolan. So rather than do the whole thing computer generated, uh, he wanted to have reality on the set. He wanted the robot to be a member of the cast that the rest of the actors could work with. And so he cast Bill Irwin, who's this fantastic physical performer. He's a, a trained physical clown. You know, he's the kind of guy who can pick up a stepladder and make it dance around and uh, give it a personality. So, uh, and then the special effects team, who build all the physical effects, the stuff that happens in front of the camera, they constructed a, a puppet. So what you see is a, a rod puppet. You stand behind it, you operate it with rods. Um, but in this case, it happened to weigh about 200 pounds. Uh, it was, had uh, pneumatically operated pistons inside it to be able to get it off the floor. And Bill was standing behind it, operating this thing and acting at the same time. Wow. So he's delivering the performance. And uh, the rest of the cast, uh, they loved it, that it was actually there. So in the finished version of the film, the majority of what you see is practical. It was really there on the set. But when the robot had to do more extraordinary things, uh, as you'll see in the clip package, that's when we went to the CG. Fantastic. And uh, one of the things we'll see in the uh, clip package as well is the water planet. Yes. Uh, was that a big challenge for you? It was, uh, it was a challenge on, in all sorts of ways. Uh, the first challenge, and perhaps the, the greatest physical challenge, was just getting through the shoot, uh, which <laughs> we shot that scene in Iceland in a, a lake, a coastal lagoon, fed by meltwater coming straight off one of the big glaciers there. So the water is crystal clear and very, very pure, but absolutely freezing. And it's about two or three feet deep, and it stretches for miles in each direction you know so you're just standing in the middle of this huge shallow lake uh, every morning we get into these monster trucks with colossal super swamper tires and drive out into the middle of this thing and be dropped off and then spend the whole day shooting them we were there for about a week and it was a very awkward location apart from being absolutely freezing the uh, the weather was pretty tempestuous you know sometimes the sun would be shining sometimes the rain would be coming in horizontally um, and it would change in moments as well. And you can see that when you watch the film, the light is always changing, but again, that's, that's reality. Um, and there's nowhere to sit, you can't put anything down. Uh, we're all in these neoprene chest waders, like sort of deep sea fishermen. And so going to the bathroom is a major operation. So it's you, too you much basically- you Too much did. information, Paul, who knows? It was but, a little uh, bit too tricky. So that was, that was hard. But then what we did is we took that and we extended that to take, take the sea out to infinity. And the majority of the scene takes place in this lake. 
But then when you see the giant wave coming in, that's all computer graphics. Uh, and that was uh, a major, major challenge in terms of the visual effects because Chris wanted us to create waves that were 4,000 feet high. You know, what does a 4,000 foot wave look like? You know, the highest waves on the Earth are about 150 feet. So <clears throat> all the usual cues that we'd use, you know, the curling breakers, all the sort of stuff you know from surfing movies, just doesn't apply. It's a mountain of water. Um, and then you need to try and find out what are the scale references that tells people that it's 4,000 feet high. And that came down to all the surface detail. So we were able to make the basic shapes, animate them very quickly, but then creating all the surface details took literally weeks. Each shot was you know, six or seven weeks of simulation time. The computer's just crunching all the numbers to create all the ripples and the spray and the foam. Um, so even though we were working on it for almost a year, we only had a couple of goes at each shot, really just because of the amount of time that it took to actually uh, get, it, get it out. So, so the, guys, the guys in the Wave team absolutely nailed it. You know, they, uh, they were delivering fantastic stuff. And wasn't very, the, very uh, the same principle on set, shooting that scene? Did you have the effects roughly there for the actors to see, but they were reacting no, to No, not it? really. Yeah. We didn't. We had, we had very rough animations, but Chris it was reluctant to show these to the, uh, to the crew because he didn't want them to get too... Uh, comfortable with the idea of what was going on. He wanted a little bit of, uh, I guess, anticipation. And what we did have, though, is we had some practical effects. So when you see the initial burst of water coming through the ship, you know, that was our special effects team firing huge water cannons at the, uh, at the, uh, at the crew. And the, it was, uh, that was, um, yeah, and the, the, the spacesuits, they were very well made, but after many hours in the water, they began to leak. So the water started getting into the suits, and I think uh, Anne Hathaway in particular, who spends half the scene lying in the water, you know, she, she had it the toughest of all. She got very, very cold in those Yikes. scenes. Yikes. Let's start with uh, The Dark Knight. There's, uh, the, uh, this is the, the Bat Pod sequence. Yes. Well, what's interesting about that is that's very much the same philosophy that we took with uh, Interstellar, in that uh, the Bat Pod was a physical uh, bike, a real motorcycle built by the special effects department who are responsible for all the mechanical effects on the set. And it could do 100 miles an hour. Uh, you could, uh, well, one guy worked out how to ride it. Uh, it couldn't, it could go pretty much in a straight line. It wasn't so great at turning sharp corners and it couldn't do the thing with the wheels tumbling over. So those are computer, those are computer generated moments. Those are visual effects. And the, what the, what we, I really learned with this film and um, watching the way that Chris works is that you can do really quite outrageous things. You know, the Batpod can do the most extraordinary maneuvers. That whole sequence ends with the Batpod hitting the wall, going up, turning upside down and landing at the end of it. It's a, it's quite, you know, it's a, it's, it's a flamboyant shot to say the very least. But people buy it as being real because it's in the stream of reality of the rest of the film. Everything else, even the Joker inside the truck, that's not shot on a green screen stage as some other filmmakers might do it. That's re he's really in that truck driving down the street, or at least it's being towed by another vehicle. So that sense of weaving the visual effects moments into the fabric of reality, and some of the stuff you're seeing in there is entirely computer generated, some of those shots. You know, they, they just, but they don't stick out because we're paying so much attention to the photography around them. And you're on set the entire time? You were on set in Chicago yes, for that sequence? Yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Those, uh, it was myself and the, uh, the other visual effects supervisors on the film. And uh, that's another key thing with Chris is that he wants everybody to be there. You know, you all, you you have to be there to be to be 
and to understand the technical aspect of what's actually gone on, but also to be part of this ongoing creative discussion which is happening all the time. You know, because things are evolving as we film them. You know, partly because of the disappointment of reality, as we discussed earlier on. Things sometimes don't work out the way you expected. I love that phrase. Uh, at what point do you, you come on board? At what point do you get the phone call from Chris Nolan saying, okay, uh, I want you on this film? These days, it's typically very early on during pre-production. So on Interstellar, it was pretty much as soon as he'd finished the first draft of the script. And uh, you know, I flew over to Los Angeles and I read the script and then went straight into a discussion with him as to how many visual effects shots we thought might be in the film, uh, how we might start telling the story. So he wants all of his, his creative leads on board as soon as possible because it is a collaborative process. It's very definitely his film, he's, but he's marshalling everybody's abilities and weaving them all together to tell the story. And obviously you have a double negative as well. Um, What's a, what's a split in your duties when you're on a, a film? Presumably you dedicate 100% of yourself to that, that, and the company is run... Yes, I mean, I, else, I'm a visual effects supervisor, so I'm the head of the visual effects department. I creatively direct the visual effects and technically supervise them. Obviously I work, it's not just me. In the case of Interstellar, there was a team of 450 uh, artists, uh, software developers, technicians, uh, production support staff all worked on the thing. It's a huge team effort, and uh, and they're and they're making a lot of creative decisions themselves, and then offering things up to me. The rest of the business side of it, you know, we have some people who are much smarter than I am doing that sort of thing. <laughs> um, I'm frankly not very good at those sorts of things. So um, I'm one of the, I guess I'm one of the makers, I suppose. Okay. Than the, uh, it's, um, but it's great because you, I've been working with the same team, just as Chris has been working with me and his other creative leads for the last 10, 12 years. I've been working with the same guys. Uh, for you know, getting on for two decades now. And that degree of familiarity, that degree of trust, you know, I think shows in the work. And you mentioned there that you, uh, when you look at the script, you start thinking about the number of effect shots that might be in the movie. Yeah. And I believe the number of effect shots in Interstellar is surprisingly low by the standards it's, of It's of relatively low. Yeah. yeah, partly because of, as I say, this uh, Chris's approach to getting things for real. And basically saying, okay, well, that's what we can do for real, that's what's going to go in my film, rather than saying, oh, that's not exciting enough, I want to replace that all with computer animation. Sure. And uh, so when you think about the scenes on the ice planet with, um, they've got these little jetpack uh, uh, gizmos which allows them to jump down into crevasses. We did those as practical stunts, you know, with the actors being dropped on descender rigs, and so we paint the wire rigs out, it's a stunt rig, uh, but the actual, even the little jets are real, you know, there's, that's a special effect that's happening in the camera. And, uh, and then what we're doing visual, with visual effects is adding the stuff that you couldn't get for real, which is the rest of the, the ice planet landscape. So that kind of approach minimizes the shot count. So we had about 700 digital visual effects shots in the film. Of those, over 600 were IMAX, which is the large format. So they're super high resolution, you know, it's uh, uh, eight times the resolution of an HD TV. So it's uh, you know they're big they're very big images, so it's uh, it's still a lot of work. You know. And uh, compare that to say Inception. Mm -hmm. What were the number of effect shots on Inception? Inception actually had fewer shots. It was um, it was about 500 shots all in. So whereas a typical summer tentpole movie that that you would consider to be effects driven would generally have around about a thousand shots. Uh, you know some of the some of the big superhero movies can have anything up to 2,000 shots in them. You know, so almost every shot in the movie is a, a visual effects shot. Um, but we use the visual effects, I guess, where we can't 
do it any other way. You know, we are, we are creating the images that just can't be filmed. Uh, so, in terms of what's practical, and what's uh, been added by you guys, by Double Negative, can you break that down for us? Well, that, we started, well, the, obviously the location itself is practical. We went to a real street in Paris and we found a real cafe. And uh, we shot it in August. Uh, the French just all go on holiday, so Paris is basically empty. So you could get away with blowing stuff up. One of the things I always find amusing in that is that obviously the car that tumbles away, that's a real car that we put on the set and special effects yanked it on a huge cable, which we pulled, we painted out and then we manipulated the speed of the image to slow it down as it uh, kind of give it that underwater sort of feel. But there's another car parked in the background, which is just some local had parked his car, gone on holiday and we couldn't move it. So it's right in the middle of everything blowing up around it. The, um, but special effects created safe, soft explosions. They used uh, air cannons, basically compressed air jets, to fire things like all the, uh, the flowers from the flower store, bits of cardboard, uh, cloth, soft materials. We built some props, uh, things like chairs and things, out of foam, which would break up and wouldn't hurt people. Because obviously we couldn't use high explosive on the set. You know, the, the French love cinema, but they weren't going to go that far <laughs> for us. Um, but that gave us something real that's in the shot. And that's, there's a fantastic shot in there where Leo and Ellen are sitting at the table and all the stuff explodes either side of them. And they're really there in the middle of these special effects elements going off either side of them. And it's been so carefully set up by Chris Corbold, who's our special effects supervisor, that it didn't even move a napkin on the table, the air jets, but blasted all this material out. And then digitally, first off, we're manipulating the speed of the elements so that we have this idea that the explosions start fast and then slow down. And the idea is that we're trying to tell the story that the physics that underpins Ariadne's dream world is collapsing. Everything is breaking down at a fundamental level. And then digitally, we're able to add all of the dangerous stuff, the flying bottles, the exploding plates, uh, the cobblestones exploding. In fact, there's the close-up shot of the cobblestones is entirely CG. That's all uh, created digitally. And uh, so it's, it's very much a partnership between special effects and the visual effects, but we did spend an awful lot of time working on that and building the chaos uh, as it gets more and more creative. It was, it was great fun doing that sequence. I, I, I can imagine it was. Um, okay, so if you have any questions now for Paul, then do put your hands up. We have uh, roving microphones around. Who's got a question? Come right on, who's going to be first? There we go. Here. Thank you. Hi, um, just quickly, in Interstellar, the scene where the rocket launches, so uh -huh. there's two shots, there's the first one of it going up and then secondly when it's above the Earth, yeah. how were they filmed? Well, the initial shots of the rocket launching from inside the silo are completely computer generated, they're, gra they're digital graphics, but they're very, very closely based on archive footage of the NASA Apollo launches, uh, all that you know, really iconic imagery, and that was a deliberate thing. We wanted the audience to immediately recognize this as this sort of you know, heroic imagery from the, from the 60s space race. And that's, that's why we used an Apollo moon rocket rather than some sort of modern spacecraft. And I even uh, came up with a little backstory for why they're using the thing. First off, it worked. They were great rockets. They never failed. Uh, they didn't use the last three of them. Well, there's one of them still in a museum in, uh, in uh, uh, Cape Canaveral down in Florida. So the idea is it's actually that rocket that's been got out of the museum and refurbished, and that's what they're going with, because that's all they've got left by this point in the story. Uh, when we get up into space, and you see the Ranger, the, uh, the little shuttle-type craft maneuvering in space, that is a full-size model of the Ranger. It's the same model that we had out in 
Iceland, parked in the lake and also on the, on the glacier. And we brought it back to Los Angeles and we put it on the stage on a thing called a motion base, which is a big hydraulic system that could pitch this thing around. It's about 50 feet long and it weighed 15 tons. Uh, it actually weighed 16 tons because it soaked up a, a ton of Icelandic seawater, which never left it. And, and this thing, Chris was able to fly this with a little controller, fly it around the stage, and we filmed that as our foreground element. And then we create the rest of it, the planetary landscape and everything, that's you know, the earth below, that's all digitally created. So we were trying to go again with as much reality in those shots as possible. And it, you know, I think it produced a very uh, tactile result. You, could, you really feel like you could reach out and hold those things because you actually could if you were on the set. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yes, please, right here at the back in between the two cameras. Hi, I, I was wondering, um, do you have a particular process for testing out any ideas that you might have? Um, I've heard that Chris Nolan likes to film things in his garage before he takes the camera mm -hmm. uh, to the set. I think he did that for a few of the Batman stunts. And I'm wondering if you could reveal any of your Yeah, he, he doesn't, processes. Chris doesn't really, he doesn't so much film them in the garage, but he does, he, uh, he spends a lot of time in there designing stuff. He has. The, the garage behind his house has been converted into a, uh, a design studio. And so he'll spend you know, two or three months in there with the production designer, uh, finding images, working out ideas. And Nathan Crowley, who's our regular production designer on these films, who designed the Batman films and Interstellar, Nathan loves making physical models. So he'll kit bash, is the term, together a model of, say, the Batmobile, making out of uh, model airplane parts and things like that. You know, the bat, the bat, the helicopter from The Dark Knight Rises is all made out of F-15 and F-16 kits and things like that. And, um, and that gives them an idea of what things are going to be. In terms of the visual effects, something like the Endurance, the big rotating spacecraft, we went through this, essentially the same process in visual effects and we had our miniatures company, the New Deal Studios out in Los Angeles, they built a physical study model, which is about so big, and we would modify it and tweak little bits on it. We'd light it, we'd take photographs of it, we'd bring it to the stage, show it to Chris, because we were already filming by this point. And um, actually having something physical that you can hold allows you to work things out pretty quickly, I think. Everyone could look at the same thing. The idea of kind of prototyping. Yeah, exactly, it's a prototyping process. And then you, know, you, then you start testing things inside the computers. You, know, you start creating animations of how things might look. We did a lot of work studying the way that the lighting would change as the spacecraft rotated. If you think, remember back to the film, when the spacecraft is rotating, you see the sun sweeping through the windows. And that was very much uh, based on uh, lighting studies we did where we put the sun at the correct distance. We put uh, virtual cameras inside the spacecraft. And we just looked at the way that the light moved around inside, inside the virtual set, uh, which, which then we showed to the lighting department, to the camera department, and they used that to inform the way that they were working. Wow. I imagine Chris Nolan's garage is not like uh, a cramped lock-up in Dagenham somewhere with a uh, Ford Cortina and wrenches think, hitting your head. I think it was at one time, yeah. but he's, uh, <laughs> he's extensively renovated it over <laughs> the years. Uh, any more questions for Paul? Yes, please. Right here in the front row, there's a microphone coming around. Hi. Uh, when you finally watch the final result in its theatre, yeah. do you manage to be absorbed by the story or are you always self-conscious about the special effects and how people will react. Well, you, you go through two different stages uh, because obviously when you're making the film and you're putting it together, you're looking at it primarily from a technical point of view, at least you're attempting to. But, um, I mean, I, I really enjoy working on these films in particular. And uh, you get swept up along in it and then suddenly you realise, oh, 
I forgot to look for that thing which I need to look for and then you've got to go can you put the reel back up again and run it again so uh, sometimes it takes two or three times to go through the things that's really tricky with the IMAX stuff the uh, IMAX film the rewind times are enormous you might wait half an hour to rewind the reel so you really have to pay attention and you can't see the whole screen at once you're looking everywhere trying to find out what's wrong with it so it's um, it, it takes a little bit of time to get distance from it um, <clears throat> You know, recently I watched in Inception again on an airplane. It was on an in-flight movie, and I decided to watch it. And it was surprising how many things I hadn't really noticed in the story, the sort of layers to the way that uh, the whole thing's put together, because I'd been so focused on, you know, have we got the chimney pots on straight in Paris, and uh, is Limbo City falling into the sea correctly, that sort of thing. So do you notice things like that on an airplane, screen that's maybe eight inches wide? Do you well, you do actually, because the, the business of transferring it to video for, uh, for television and putting it onto one of those screens is quite harsh and it can sometimes show up technical mistakes you made in the way that you put the images together you didn't necessarily notice on film, particularly the way that all the colours and the exposures balance out. So if it looks, if it looks good on the, uh, on the, on the uh, in-flight movie, you, you, you know, oh, we did our job properly. Fantastic. I think it was a, there's a lady here and then we can go to you as well. Hello. There you go. Hello. Um, slightly different question, actually. Sure. I've just been really lucky enough to work with um, BAFTA award-winning film director, Adam Jean, who yeah. loves to do his amazing special effects. Yes, I worked with him in advertising yeah. many, many years ago. Yeah, great guy. So I was lucky enough to be his assistant, and that has convicted me now that I want to work in film sure. essentially for life. So the question I like to ask people is... It's not all the glamour that everyone thinks. And no. You've got to work really, really hard, very long hours. Well, what you heard my it? story about trying to go to the bathroom in Iceland in the chest waders, so there you yeah. go. Yeah, so <laughs> what is it that on the, you know, what is the thing that drives you the most? What is the biggest passion that you have on the worst of worst days when you're exhausted and you think, what is it that's your real uh, The thing, it's storytelling. You know, that's the thing which, is, uh, which really excites me. I, I got into filmmaking through working with friends uh, on student theatre productions when I was uh, uh, studying fine art. I was a sculptor and painter originally. And um, we were all making stage plays and I was designing the sets and things. And I, I loved the whole process of doing that. But then one day we all realised we were all interested in making films. And film for me is about storytelling. And so my whole career after that point, I worked in video games, I worked in television advertising, I did a lot of graphic design for TV idents, for, you know, TV channels and things like that, but storytelling has always been the focus and particularly for me film allows you the space to do that because that's ultimately the end product is, is it a good story, is it involving, and, you know, we, storytelling is as old as the human race and uh, you know, I think filmmaking is, is at the moment is the most sophisticated way of, of achieving that, obviously it continues to evolve and there's all sorts of extraordinary things happening with new technologies so it's, uh, it's very much that that keeps you going. And also the prospect of, uh, of eating at the end of the day. Absolutely. Thank you. And just very quickly following up on that, uh, Paul, I mean, how did you gravitate towards visual effects from a fine art background? Well, I was always very interested in uh, technology. You know, I grew up at a time when computers weren't ubiquitous. You know, things like the Apple Store uh, didn't exist. You know, they. I mean, there was one guy down the road who had a terminal for a mainframe computer, which is in a remote building. He worked for a big British computer manufacturer. 
And that was amazing to me, this, this thing that could make numbers and letters appear on the screen. Um, but I was very much interested in the idea of technology and computers, and of course growing up watching things like Doctor Who and Star Trek, and, and then later on Star Wars. Um, that what was really fascinating there was the idea that if I couldn't be an astronaut, which I wanted to do when I was a small boy, uh, maybe I could go to these places in the imagination by being one of the guys that made these worlds for these things. And then when I came out of art school uh, at the end of the 80s, was just at the point when computers had got to the stage where you could make convincing photographic images with them. And it completely transformed the visual effects business, which I'd been sort of interested in, you know, growing up watching Ray Harryhausen films and things like that. So computers turbocharged it all, and it brought everything together in one place for me, which is filmmaking, storytelling, high technology. I could apply what I'd learned in, uh, you know, as, a, as an artist. And, um, and, you know, best of all, I could get paid for it, which was something <laughs> I think I wasn't really in any danger of making money out of my fine art. But um, uh, so, yeah, it was this amazing synthesis that brought everything together. And it's, it's an ever-changing field. It's never the same twice, you know. The, the things we did on Interstellar we couldn't do a few years ago, and the things that we'll do next year we wouldn't be able to do this year. So it's, um, it's, it's constantly challenging you, constantly keeping you thinking, and that's you know, fantastic. And have you had that phone call from Chris Nolan yet on the next one? Not, he's, I think he's, uh, he's in his lair. He's, you know, he's uh, <laughs> thinking about things, thinking deep thoughts. In the Nolan uh, case. He'll, you know, Chris, Chris will never tell you what he's going to do until he's ready to actually do it. You know, he doesn't, uh, and he always, when you're working on a film with him, he always says that he treats every film he does as his last film that he's going to make. Uh, so he won't even, he, won't, he certainly won't discuss what he's going to do next, and he's not even thinking about it really. He's just completely focused on that film, and I think it shows in the product. No, no, check your phone. He might have called during this. You, you never he know. doesn't have a cell phone, so he doesn't no call. Way. No way. Really? No cell phone, no email. You learned something? <laughs> no email? Nope. Do you have to carry your pigeon? How do you communicate with them? Is it a... You have to know the right people. <laughs> Secret handshake. And the last question from this lady here, if you just get the microphone. Thank you. I did promise. This one. Um, how involved were you with the Oculus Rift process with Interstellar? Oh, that. Um, not that involved, to be perfectly honest. Uh, we provided digital models of the spacecraft, but... Um, that they were then able to use inside the Oculus thing. But that was done by a separate team who took our data and then uh, produced this extraordinary thing. Um, I think it's, a very, it's fascinating. It's something that I'd be very interested in myself. A uh, long, long time ago, I used to work in video games. And it was just when virtual reality was going through its first flush of excitement. But you know, the computers just weren't up to it 20 years ago. Uh, and it seems like now, finally, they've got to that stage where they can do extraordinary things. And I think just like with all new advances in technology, people are going to find new ways of telling stories with these things that we just can't even really imagine yet. And so, you know, we're just taking those very first little baby steps right now. But uh, I didn't, I, I, I wasn't, I never actually got uh, to have a go on the Oculus Interstellar thing, but I hear it was, uh, it was very immersive. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. On that note, uh, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for your questions. Thanks, of course. Paul Franklin. Thank you. Thank you. I almost forgot that. <laughs> And Oscar. <laughs> yes, indeed.